players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Dark Ritual, Lightning Bolt, Ancestral Recall, and many others. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Therabian University, and TheEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by Eminence Gaming. Hello, and welcome to episode 96 of the Eternal Glory Podcast, Entering Legacy. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introductions and banter for the week, available in our supporter-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access or join as a YouTube member for the same content on YouTube instead. As always, I'm Phil Gallagher, a.k.a. Thraben U, joined by... I am Brian Koval, a.k.a. Boston Roll. And I am Brian Cook of theepicstorm.com. Shout out to our new members. We've got Kenji coming through YouTube and Tony Scaponi through Patreon. And last episode, I said Patreon was having a display bug and we couldn't see anyone who had joined recently. Sorry, we still can't see you. Uh, If you joined between March 11th and today, we can't see you. If you want a shout out, ping us. We will make sure you get one. Sorry. We, We truly do appreciate you, but the tech issues are outside of our control. And, uh, we got a, we're working on it when we reached out about some of our recent problems. So you know how that goes. All right, let's do our ad read and then let's get into the show proper. Are you interested in running a CEDH event or want your LGS to do so? Worried about the logistics of it? Fear not. Eminence Gaming's Command Tower software has you covered. You can create and manage tournaments easily and its unique pairing system ensures you don't get paired against the same players multiple times. Visit eminence.events for details. I think it would have been funnier if Phil didn't start there with, oh, well, let's get the ad read out of the way. I feel like that's just how he started conversation in his like ad read voice. Or like we could have like movie narrated it. In a world where you're trying to run a CEH event, but you have no idea what the fuck you're doing, a savior emerges. I honestly hope that I achieve a level of sponsorship at some day that I have to start every conversation with like, hi, are you trying to run a CEDH event? <laughs> Just have to brand to everybody at all times. But anyway, we have an episode. We talk about legacy every week and generally appeal to an enfranchised audience. And there are lots of folks who are looking to enter legacy who are not enfranchised, quite the opposite. And we were looking for topics today and Rockstar Gene on Twitter, who I believe I interacted with uh, at SCG Richmond quite a bit last weekend, if that is who I think it is. Uh, They said, maybe a discussion on barrier of entry into legacy, not necessarily financial, but talk about card selection, deck selection, that sort of thing. And that was perfect timing because I also just picked up a coaching client in my individual stuff who basically came to me saying, I've played casual my whole life. I played one legacy tournament and I really liked it. And then all my friends who brought me to that tournament quit magic. What do I do now? And I have not coached somebody from zero in that fashion before. And it was already kind of fresh in my mind. And then Gene asked that same question and 
we're going to make an episode out of it. Get new friends. That's mostly the answer. Meet cool people that play Legacy. Forget about your old friends. It's very easy. Yeah, sell all your possessions, buy duels. Thank you for listening to this episode. This has been the Eternal Glory Podcast. Check out our Patreon and we'll see you next week. All right. So let's kind of start. Like, let's say you are entering from this ground zero, or maybe you're thinking, like, how do I get my friends into Legacy who maybe play Magic but know nothing about Legacy? And we probably have to start with the elephant in the room, which is the almighty dollar and the financial side of Legacy. Legacy is an expensive format. It's no vintage, but it is still very expensive due to the reserve list cards. And while many events are proxy or playtest card friendly, not all of them are. Some of your local game store events might be no proxy. Some of them might be proxy friendly. Something to be aware of. And you said something that always bugs me. Uh, You said it's not vintage. And it doesn't bug me that you said that. But when I think about when I started playing Legacy, vintage tournaments were already universally proxy friendly at that time it was like eternal weekend and bazaar of moxen were the two events that didn't allow proxies in the world every year and that was a time when black lotus cost one thousand dollars and moxes cost three hundred dollars right now volcanic island is nearly one thousand dollars plateau costs two hundred and fifty dollars badlands is three hundred dollars and those are non-blue duels cost more now than moxen did when I started playing this and proxies were already just a given in vintage. So the fact that Legacy, which has a history of being the budget eternal format, at least relative to vintage, now costs more than vintage did when I got into it. It's just a wild time to try to enter this format. Phil mentioned proxies at your local game store. In 2018, I was someone that was against proxies. I was like, you know, I have a paper deck. We have a good group of people that come every week with our paper deck. And then that dwindled down. And I had someone explain to me why proxies could be good for growing the player base. And sure enough, we started with 10 proxies. And then after a couple of weeks, we were like, well, let's just do unlimited proxies. And with unlimited proxies, we went from getting eight to 10 people up to 2025. And it was, we were thriving before the pandemic hit. Um, unfortunately, that games were closed, but we had a good run while it lasted. And I went from being pretty like stingy, being like, no, I have real cards to fully embracing it and having that on both sides, just allow proxies. Like it's the best way to get people to come to your game store to buy singles and stuff. Like if you're a game store, you will still make money off the people coming. I promise. The first taste is free is I think a good way to look at this here. Like get people interested and excited about a format and they will probably want to acquire the cards to actually play those decks at actual sanctioned events in other places. And as your local game store, they are probably going to turn to you in one capacity or another to get a lot of those cards. Yeah, I recently went through the same experience in the last couple of years with EDH, where I started with, I would just like an EDH deck. And then once I had it, I was like, I'm going to show my pride and foil this buddy out. And then I started CEDH, where proxies are just fully embraced by the entire community. And I proxied up six or seven decks, and I decided I didn't like two of those decks. And I now own the other five fully non-proxied, and two of them are fully foiled out. Folks, if you get that taste, if you try before you buy, then they will start seeking it out. 
even if your local scene is proxy friendly and but eternal weekends not your all your friends are going to eternal weekend that's going to motivate you to spend the next you know six months in preparation to get the cards you need so it's we're not going to spend too much time talking about the reserve list and how expensive legacy is but we had to address it at least a little bit and that is a route into it like let people proxy maybe they'll start winning if you win proxy legacy night and you win a dual land that's a card you don't have to proxy anymore and off you go that's just how it happens i acquired a set of 40 duels which i don't currently have because i had to get a car at some point and i sold off a lot of stuff but i acquired a set of 40 duels and i purchased very few of those most of those i air quotes purchased with store credits or one from events after I did my initial buy-in to Legacy when I got um, Death and Taxes, I was able to build a huge portion of the format because I got invested. I started playing in tournaments regularly, and all my winnings went towards furthering myself in that format. Like, getting started one way or another kind of snowballs you towards being able to access more decks in the format relatively quickly. Yeah, I occasionally try to figure out how many dual lands I've owned in my life. And I think the answer is somewhere around 150. And I probably paid for, like, took cash out of my account and gave it to a vendor for 25, 30 of those 150. And the rest are, you know, let the good times roll once you're here. So on on the note of proxying, there is nothing wrong with sharpying on the back of cards or using one of the various websites that allows you to print uh, playtest cards and using that as your entry point into Legacy. I have seen so many Legacy posts of people building a battle box of decks to test out Legacy with. You know, they take 10 of the most popular decks in the format or whatever and go and try them out. There's other digital ways to play, and we'll loop back around to that in a second. In terms of finances, do not, do not go, I want to try Legacy and spend one to $5,000 on a deck. Figure out what you will want to play for years, the sort of macro level strategy that you think you're going to enjoy. Figure that out, and then if you want to make the, the purchase, go for it. Don't make a $2,000 purchase and then go like, oh, I got bored of Sneak and Show after playing it for a month and end up in an awkward spot. Well, Phil, what if my friends don't play Legacy, but I want to try Legacy? I can proxy, but I can't face anyone locally. Like, what do I do? Like, how do I play Legacy if I have no friends that play it? Luckily, coming out of a pandemic, we're used to that exact situation. There's all sorts of ways that you can play webcam magic if you are interested in physical cards. But for most people, when they want to start trying something for free, you try something out like playing some games on one of the free clients. You can do things via Cockatrice, which doesn't really have any rules enforcement. Uh, you can do some playtesting games on Moxfield. Um, there's Apprentice. There's Workstation. And if you're willing to financially invest a little bit into an online client, you can just play on Magic Online. Magic Online costs a fraction of what paper decks do. 
in most cases, in most cases, and loan accounts from places like Card Hoarder can really make it accessible where, you know, you pay a flat fee and then you get to borrow a deck and you don't have to put all that money out up front to try playing things on Magic Online to see if you like the format. There is one big thing that I would like to emphasize about Magic Online. So, for example, the Epic Storm and Paper cost somewhere between five and $7,000, depending on the versions and conditions and whatever. You can buy the Epic Storm on Magic Online for literally 220 tickets right now. That is, like Phil said, a fraction. But the biggest difference between Paper and Magic Online, in my opinion, is let's say I spend that $220 to buy this digital version of the deck. Maybe I decide then I don't actually like the Epic Storm, which I would say, like, why? Why you got to do that to me? But ultimately, you could sell it back to dealers. And in paper, if you buy an underground C, then you want to sell it back to a dealer. They will offer you 60 to 70%. Magic Online, you're getting back somewhere between 90 and 95%. Like, you get back so much more of whatever you're selling back to the bots or dealers on the client compared to what you do in paper. So your risk assessment is much lower. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to emphasize this with like a personal anecdote. So all of us are sponsored by Card Hoarder. So we have these loan accounts that let us play with whatever we want. Every once in a while, right when new cards are released or when some special thing comes out of a commander set or something, it's not covered by our loan program. Most of the time, I will go and I will just buy those cards. I will play a league with them. I will sell those cards immediately. And I'm usually not out more than five bucks for doing so. And that is like buying the the, the new hotness that's price is highly volatile. Sometimes I even end up making money by buying something that's new and hot, recording with it, holding it for a week, releasing the video. And then it's like, oh, all of a sudden these are worth more because this was interesting to people. You can end up with most or all of your money back playing on Magic Online and I know that personally, once I bought my initial legacy deck, once I bought Death and Taxes on Magic Online, I never put another penny into the program, and I cannot imagine how many hours I have played Magic Online for, Uh, and that is very telling. Right, we'll get more into winning and losing as you enter the format as the episode rolls out here, but... The leagues are extremely generous. If you go two and three out of your five rounds, you get half your money back. So that's you get to play a dollar a match. It costs you a dollar to play a match. That's a pretty good rate uh, compared to like going to see a movie or buying a video game or whatever it is else you're going to do with your money. And then if you go three, two, you've actually made money. You get all of your entry fee back plus a treasure chest that's worth like two and a half tickets. Leagues are super generous if you're in that low-cost grind mode, and you can hover around a 50% win rate. Also, as a side note, and this is for all all of our listeners, if you are not playing on Magic Online, you should really consider it if you are taking Magic seriously in any capacity. I cannot overstate enough how nice it is to be able to jam games at any hour of the day, and your average Magic Online opponent is probably going to be much better than your average local game store opponent. You get a lot of quality practice. That's not to say that every one of your rounds is going to be against a fantastic opponent who really knows your stuff, but you're regularly going to be playing against pro four competitors, challenge winders, former grinders, format specialists, people who really know their stuff. I think we've covered that pretty well. Now let's talk about, like, that's ways to spend money or ways to save money. Now let's talk about where we're going to put that money a little bit. 
Phil mentioned invest in a deck you want to play for years. And that's a great point. Deck specifics will change and you'll need to update the things on the fringes. New cards will come out. The meta will shift. But most cores haven't significantly changed in a decade or more. If you look at Fetchland, Dualand, Brainstorm, Force of Will, that hasn't gone anywhere since the format's birth. Days, Wasteland, those are safe cards. Other cores uh, like uh, Dark Ritual and Artifact Mana, and then cores like Ancient Tomb City of Traitor's Chalice of the Void, that stuff looks the same. You want to be careful with your decision because some of those are more versatile than others. If you Start by playing Is It Delver. If you decide it's time to buy in and you want to own Is It Delver, and then six months from now you change your mind, owning a set of Fetchlands, Volcanic Islands, Force of Will is going to pivot into other stuff better than if you decide you want to play Red Stompy and then you own City of Traders, Ancient Tomb, Chalice of the Void. Because that's a very specific thing, whereas blue sources of mana and blue spells to cast with them is a wide open thing. I forget who wrote it. Somebody did an article series a couple years back, and now that I'm thinking about it, it might be five or so years back, about like different entry paths into Legacy, where going down like a Lion's Eye Diamond combo route is one direction. Going an Ancient Tomb route is one direction. Going Blue Fetchland, Force of Will Cantrip is another direction. It's pretty easy to pivot within the general path that you start going, so if you figure out like what macro archetype you want to play, if you know you're going to be a good old stompy boy for life, like Ancient Tomb is a safe purchase for you. But if you think Chalice of the Void is a sin against, you know, every every god known to man and some that aren't, you know, maybe maybe don't buy into those because you're going to want to pivot to somewhere else very quickly. There are some decks that have no reserve list cards in them. The top of the, that list is 8-cast and death and taxes and many builds of painter servant combo don't play any reserveless cards at all and the ones that do might be like one or two city of traders which you don't actually need because many people aren't playing those the new artifact stuff like ursa saga has really kind of kicked open the door of what's playable in legacy i think saga kind of built a new pillar of the format around the card itself and it shows up in like different spots, but it's all nebulous. This isn't well-defined in any specific way. But if we talk about pillars of the format as like Lion's Eye Diamond, Brainstorm, Chalice of the Void, Urza Saga is somewhere doing its own thing as well. All three of the decks I just mentioned have played Saga in the past, and two of them still have it at the core of their engine. So that's a cool place to go. Death and Taxes and Painter both kind of put you in that trap I mentioned, though, where their cards don't overlap much. In Death and Taxes, you get Stoneforge Mystic and Swords to Plowshares, which will be helpful cards. Uh, Wasteland's in that deck as well. Uh, you're not going to find a lot of homes for, like, Thalia and Aethervile, though. Painter basically only has Urza Saga and Pyroblast that's going to overlap with anything. Tread carefully there. Eight cast, though, you get Urza Saga, you get Force of Will. Uh, Force of Will will take you in a lot of places. So they all have a little bit of touching in different directions, but I think Painter is kind of off on its own island as far as playable cards go. Let's say that I'm someone who plays a lot on Magic Arena, or I'm a limited gamer, maybe some standard, but I'm for some reason interested in playing Legacy. I'm someone who likes to do general Magic things. I like attacking, blocking, combat math, this sort of thing. 
you have to give one recommendation to the format of like, this is a general game of magic. What deck should I play? I would tell, I would answer that question with Delver of Secrets. It's probably pretty fair. That would be my answer as well. Right. We're, we're going to sing the praises of Delver in a couple paragraphs here. Um, I promise that's coming. As far as like working up our reserve list hierarchy here, a cast death intense painter have no reserve list or can be built with no reserve list. Light reserve list, shadow, reanimator, and red stompy. Like death shadow, there's one underground sea in that deck. And then you get to play with fetchland shocklands. If you own modern, you're pretty close to this deck already. You need force of wills and one underground sea. And I guess wasteland, that's another one. Reanimator, you need a couple bad lands, but there's not a lot of reserve list in this deck. And then Red Stompy is City of Traitors, but that's going to send you into one of those uh, ancient tomb chalice of the void money pits that you have to dig out of if you want to play any other deck ever. But you can enter the format. And I think Death Shadow would also land in Bryant's uh, theoretical question there of I just like attacking and blocking. Maybe I have some modern experience. Shadow will make a lot of sense to that player. All right, so let's use what Bryant said to kind of pivot into our next section. You're new to Legacy, or, you know, you're talking to someone, you're trying to make a deck recommendation for them. You know, what do you tell them to play? If you are looking to get the general experience of this is what Legacy is like, I recommend starting with Delver, or at the very least, starting by playing some games against Delver. Brian, I think you have referred to Delver as true north of the format many, many times. Do you want to comment on that and explain that? Yeah, I, I think I actually stole that terminology or borrowed it from Lawrence Harmon, who is one of the greater minds who has worked on Legacy in the past 8-10 years. Everything Lawrence said is smart, and when he called it True North, it just made perfect sense to me. Legacy is about Delver, for the most part. Like, decks need to respect Delver, decks need to plan for Delver. If you show up with something that's off the wall, the first theoretical question that needs to be asked is, how's your Delver matchup? It's not just like a, 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 car, a deck like Pre-Ban Initiative, where it's like, how's your Pre-Ban Initiative? Causes really uh, perverse incentives in deck building. Delver, even when it's appropriate, when it's under the, the bandable card limit, is it puts you to a lot of tests that the format is going to ask of any deck. It's going to present a clock. Your life total is going to start dropping very early in the game. It's going to disrupt you on board with Wasteland and Lightning Bolt. It's going to disrupt you on the stack with the Force of Will and Days. It's going to make a lot of decisions, see a lot of cards along the way. That is what Legacy is about. You'll play a lot of matchups where... Neither players on Delver, but both of those decks were built with Delver in mind. A lot of the things that other decks are doing can be found in Delver. Death and Taxes, that's a Wasteland Thalia deck. Wasteland Thalia, Delver also has Wasteland and it has Days. It has its own little Thalia business going on. Uh, we talk about any control deck, Cantrips and Force of Will. Delver has those. We talk about any sort of aggressive deck, like a Stompy deck putting an attacker on the board quickly and then getting over the finish line. Delver does that. There's elements of what Delver does in most decks. Just understanding how this thing works is going to be essential to your legacy experience. I often don't like recommending Delver 
to a starting player. I think like given Bryant's situation, like I would absolutely recommend Delver to that player. But the thing about starting someone with a blue cantrip deck is that playing cantrips well requires you to understand what you are looking for with those cantrips. And so when you first start playing Legacy, if you don't know how to use your cantrips, you're going to be hemorrhaging percentage points here and there by not stacking your ponders correctly, by not sequencing your brainstorm versus your ponder versus your preordain. If you're playing that correctly, you're not going to know what you're looking for. You're not going to be able to look at your opponent's first fetch land and go, oh, they're probably on this. My ponder needs to look for this to avoid X or Y thing that my opponent might have. As a counterpoint there, you will start learning quickly what you need to be doing with those cantrips and your initial deficiencies will scale up quickly if you start working on that as a skill. Right. Just like with any new skill, you have to do it to to get better at it. Uh, you start lifting weights, you lift small, and then you'll get sore, and then you'll lift bigger, then you'll get sore, and then you'll lift bigger. Playing any new deck is going to be like that. And like Phil said, you will hemorrhage points when you're playing Delver, this deck does not play itself, quite the opposite. It's a really intricate deck full of tiny decisions. But I think putting a new player in the spot, as long as that new player is willing to be honest and reflective about what happened in the game, if they're able to realize like, oh, I surveilled that thing to Dragon's Rage Channeler because I didn't think I needed it, but then two turns later it was exactly what I needed, and I could have predicted that if I knew the format better, those learning opportunities are just going to come at you like a high-speed train if you're willing to receive them. If you are a player who is like, I just got unlucky, RNG, I don't know, man. I just keep losing, I can't win with Delver. This deck is fake news. Then you're not going to succeed with anything. If you're in a really good learning growth mindset, Delver will get you there quick. You'll learn how to sequence cantrips and fetch lands, and how to manage force and days resources, when to wasteland, when not to wasteland. You get these high-impact sideboard cards that are really cool, all in a proactive shell. Like You don't have to sit there and answer every single thing. You just have to answer what matters. You'll learn quickly what matters and what doesn't. Even if you end up hating it, you'll at least know how it feels to sit in the seat, and then you'll be able to start attacking the Delver deck. I usually don't recommend Delver to new players. I usually recommend a deck that does a thing. A deck that tries to shove something in your opponent's face and says, can you beat this thing? Um, and by this I mean decks like Reanimator or Show and Tell that attempt to cheat a large creature into play. A deck like, you know, Moon Stompy, where like, okay, I'm going to play this Legion War boss into this Goblin Rabblemaster and see if you can deal with that. Or maybe if you are more on the combo lines, maybe something like Cephalid Breakfast, where you have an A plus B combo that will usually win the game. The reason I recommend these decks is I think they're more fun to a starting player. You get to see the broken things that Legacy can do. Delver doesn't do a thing that is like sexy broken, if that makes sense. You don't have a 3-3 attacker and go like, oh yeah, this is it. This is Legacy. When you put a Grizzlebrand or an Atraxa into play or an Emrakul into play, like you, when you do that on turn one or two, you feel like you're doing something dumb and you're cheating and you really feel the power level of the format. 
in a way that's very different from the pow- the way Delver expresses its power. That's a, that's a totally reasonable way to go. The one thing I want to caution people, and I think all of the things that Phil said are solid. Reanimator, Show and Tell, Breakfast, Stompy, all those decks are in that wheelhouse. Notice we didn't mention Burn or like Dredge. Uh, there are decks that are just so bad that we're not going to recommend. Every time this happened every year, uh, there was a local store to me that ran a year-end invitational. All of their events all year fed this thing. And the main event was three rounds of Legacy, three of Modern, three of Standard with a booster draft top eight. Legacy was always the first three rounds, so nobody dropped yet. And everyone was always like, I'm just going to play Burn. I qualified at by winning the pre-release. What do I know about Legacy? I'm going to build Burn. None of those people did well in Legacy. That's just not the way to do it. So there are decks that just shove. And then there's decks that shove on a Legacy power level. And make sure you're doing the right kind of one. And the other thing I want to talk about here, which is something I go over with my coaching clients all the time, is these decks aren't for dumb people. Like, if your mindset is, I don't know the format yet, I'm going to be powerful, proactive, and when somebody does something to stop me, I now know about that thing, that's fine. But if you are seven years into playing Legacy, and you're just like, I don't know, I'm dumb, I just play show and tell, I can't figure out all that Delver stuff, you're not doing yourself a service, because everyone can figure it out if they do the work, and... It's kind of a cop out to say otherwise, but if you we are on a a growth path to know legacy and be really good at legacy, just saying like I play show and tell because I don't want to make decisions is you're not doing yourself any favors with that. So just don't get stuck in this range. But if you do explore legacy and come back to the spot where you're like, no, actually, Suffolk Breakfast is just the best deck, or Reanimator is great in my local meta. Great, but don't play it because you think you're dumb or you will never catch up to Legacy because you will if you want to do it. If you play one of these decks that just attempts to shove and kill your opponent, you will probably have more initial success than if you play something like Delver. When you're playing Delver, it's often hard to tell what your mistakes are, right? You cast a Ponder, you have three cards that you can stack in any order or you can choose to shuffle. When you start getting a second cantrip into that, or you start getting a fetch land into that, those decisions become much more complicated quickly. In, say, a reanimator deck, all right, you have an Entomb. Do you want the Grizzlebrand? Do you want the Atraxa? Do you want the Archon? It's probably going to be clearer which one of those lines you should take, right? And the power level of those decks will often carry you in initial games. And I often tell people, try playing something like this, so that your deck can do its thing and you can kind of watch other people do their things while you're playing something that is a little bit more linear and has clearer branching decision trees than a cantrip deck does. But here's the downside of playing one of these shoving decks. You might get a warped picture of what Legacy is. Like, let's say you choose Reanimator. Legacy to you might come down to I need to understand how my opponent is sideboarding so that I can figure out what I need to be doing in games two and three. 
And a lot of legacy to you might be understanding graveyard hate and how to play around it or how to play through it, how to dodge it. And you might not have the healthiest idea of what legacy gameplay is like if you are playing something that is on one of these extremes of combo or prison or something like that. Right, or learning I, a perfect four-card hand is better than a good six-card hand in Mulligan Decisions, which is not true in many archetypes. Phil smiled. You all couldn't see it, but Phil Phil knows who I'm talking about. But uh, Phil Mulligans more than I do in Legacy, and that is correct some amount of the time, and it's incorrect some amount of the time. We both have... I come from a brainstorm background. Phil comes from a Thalia background. And I'm used to my deck providing decisions as the game goes on. Phil's used to making the biggest decision of the game in the opening grip. So we come from different perspectives. And you can end up in a high skill area. Like both of us now do this for our job for the most part. So like we both got to a spot where it's fine. But I imagine... If he and I played the same deck and were dealt the same hands, you'd see a very different mulligan philosophy. One of my most common responses on YouTube videos is, I think you mulligan too much. And it always blows my mind because I'm playing these hyper-efficient combo decks, much like Reanimator, the deck that we're discussing. And I completely understand why people coming from other backgrounds might believe that. But as Brian mentioned, the perfect four card hand is much better than your bad five or an average six. And ultimately, when you're playing a deck like Reanimator, you just want to do the thing. You want to do what Phil said. You just want to go turn one Gristlebrand. You want to draw 14, play a grief, reanimate the grief, leave your opponent with no hand and go, good luck. Like, that's what you want to be doing. And I'd rather take the chance on four cards than keep a below average five or anything like that. And... I don't know. That's like one of the exciting things about Legacy is you can go turn one Crystal Brain and just draw 14 cards. But at the same time, if you're in the Brian Koval camp, you could be sitting there with Endurance in your hand or Forcible or Surgical Extraction. And even though it might seem like your opponents are cheesing you, and that's what some people might refer to decks like Reanimator, Show and Tell, Stomp Your Breakfast, it might seem cheesy. But Legacy is full of free interaction or interaction that can be played very quickly. And it removes some of that cheese factor. Because when you get into the real nitty gritty of Legacy, you understand that there's so much nuance. And it's what makes it such a beautiful format. Yeah, the terminology that Magic has recently adopted, especially in modern, of scamming. like That's terminology in other games. Or a scam is where you're like, come on, I thought we were going to play like gentlemen here. And you're just of sending a bunch of cheap units into my base in the first three minutes of the, the game, I was setting up for a longer game. Well, your base is set all the same. You got scammed. And that's fine. Legacy is full of scams. There's nothing wrong with that. And if you're not scamming yourself, you need to respond. You need to be able to answer that. And the format does provide all those things. And we're Brian's here talking about advocating for the perfect four over a medium five. And I literally sell shirts that say Island Ponder Keep on them. Like that's where the, this is what we're talking about. We're coming from different things. We're playing different decks and uh, we are both successful in the format. And it's just a deep thing. Just make sure you know what path you're going down and what lens you're looking through. When you learn all these initial skills, understand that that's not all the skills, but you do have to start somewhere. 
All right, let's take this to the other extreme now. So we've we've made recommendations for decks to play. Let's do the other end. What deck should someone not start on when learning Legacy? Anything with Kern the Great Creator. Boom. <laughs> All right, gotta gotta get that one in there. That's fair for the new Legacy players, the people to whom this episode is primarily dedicated. That was Bryant making a joke about how he doesn't like Karn the Grey Creator. Karn decks are actually friggin' sick and a pretty reasonable place to start, in all seriousness. But things you don't want to do are decks where you need to know what your opponent's doing as well as what you are doing. A deck like Death and Taxes, which is awkward because I shouted out my new coaching client at the start of this or this uh, video, whatever this is, episode this episode uh who just was handed a legacy deck and was like what do i do he was handed yori on taxes and said what do i do and one of the first things we talked about is how hard it's going to be to learn legacy through death and taxes and that is a tough one i think death and taxes alongside lands like traditional life from the loam exploration lands those are two of the hardest decks to play optimally in the history of the format certainly in the present day of the format there's so many little decisions you need to know if you need to start on Aether Vile or Mother of Runes or Wasteland when your death and taxes. Is this a Thalia matchup on turn two, or should I be shoving my Stoneforge Mystic? Do I stop Rashad and porting them for one turn to get an attacker on board? And then when I port them for the next three turns, they're taking damage, but they get a small window to do something in the middle. You need to know all that stuff, and you need to know what decks have what pressure points and you're not going to know that when you start the format. But Brian, Death and Texas doesn't have any reserve list cards in it, and it's arguably the best budget deck in the format. I mean, you can buy all, uh, let me do the math here, 95 cards for $1,000 flat. And you, before anyone gets really upset, budget is relative to the format itself. When you're looking at a $1,000 deck compared to the $9,000 uh, Blue Red Delver deck, I don't actually know how much that is off the top of my head, but decks get pretty expensive. I think it's like 5500 Okay. But I was looking at it earlier today. But yeah, it is one-fifth or less of the cost of is Delver to play Death and Taxes. That is a pretty big squeeze. One of the most approachable decks, we even shouted it out for having zero reserve list cards is also one of the hardest decks to play perfectly in the format. And that is a tough squeeze. And you do see a lot of players, at least I do, in local paper legacy events, rocking death and taxes. The metagame is overrepresented compared to any big event or Magic Online data. And it's because the deck is affordable. But those players are going to do a lot of losing on their way to winning. It's also a deck that ports over from Modern, which is something else you see a lot with people coming into Legacy, is they'll say, oh, I have this deck in Modern. I should just try to build the missing pieces for Legacy. So I might be a Crab Vine player in Modern, and I go, oh, well, a deck like Hogak exists in Legacy. Maybe I'll get the missing pieces and I'll play Hogak. And I think Death and Taxes is usually one of those decks. So... I'm going to read a quote from my website, uh, age myself here. This is from MTG Salvation, uh, from user Lormador. I'm pretty new to the deck myself, having picked it up in April. Sometimes other players approach me and state their intention to try it out. I always tell them I spent my first three months with the deck losing. The deck is hard to play, 
It's ultimately extremely rewarding, but until the nirvana of owning the board with a few white creatures, an artifact, and a handful of lands can be reached, a lot of dues need to be paid. I have sent this quote to so many people when they tell me, I'm going to try out death and taxes. You gotta be honest with yourself. You're gonna have to question everything. You're gonna have to ask your opponent's questions like, why did you do this? What should I have done? Which one of these two drops do you think I should have played? If you want to start with death and taxes and you are willing to do the work, that's great and you can have some success. But expect to get your ass absolutely kicked and many of your games are not gonna be fun during your, your learning process. Another deck that kind of has a foot in each of the camps of just shove it'll be fun and you need to know everything is doomsday which i hope has a reputation appropriately so of being this brain bender doomsday is much easier post thassa's oracle than it was before thassa's oracle was printed we're in a golden era of doomsday knowing how to make a doomsday pile and then how to make a doomsday pile that beats exactly what your opponent is representing, both in their deck list and with the information they've given you in the game, that is a totally different higher level skill. And I don't recommend starting with doomsday either. Uh, if you want to have the busted dark ritual experience, reanimator is great. I would say even a storm deck is probably easier than doomsday, though storm you also have to solve for all these unknowns. Veil of Summer or Imstant put the training wheels on that pretty well uh, compared to Doomsday, Pass the Pile, What Do I Do, How Do I Beat Endurance, Force of Will, and Dress Down with these five cards. It's a big thing to solve. I have been playing combo decks nonstop for the last 17 years. There's never been a deck that makes me feel more inadequate than playing Doomsday. I just constantly second guess myself. I'm never sure of my actions. Like it is a very, very, very difficult deck to play correctly. Decks like Death and Taxes, Doomsday, and Lands, I feel like my losses are almost always my fault. Like, yeah, some, sometimes you're just gonna lose on on turn one. Like that happens in Legacy sometimes. But I feel like a lot of times in prolonged games, I just have so many decisions, and the games are the games are mine to win or mine to lose. And these decks have very high skill ceilings. The training phases can be rough, so be be ready. And I think let's pivot into talking about like mental fortitude and like getting ready to take your beatings and getting ready to learn a new format. Um, Bryant, this section was your idea, so why don't you start us off here? Of course. So I was really interested in learning Pioneer Lotus Field when that deck came to power i was like this deck does everything i do it's pretty much a storm deck in the format of pioneer i had no pioneer experience and i probably lost playing in leagues because ultimately playing on magic online you're facing players that are much better like phil mentioned earlier in this episode and i went 0514 over and over i probably spent my first month maybe month and a half without a winning record and it was really defeating because i was looking at the challenge results every weekend there was lotus field in first and third place or second and third or whatever and i was like what do these people know that i don't and i would ask a lot of questions and ultimately i ended up getting there and now i'm very good with the deck but you have to be prepared to take your lumps that's pretty much it like if you want to enter a new format it doesn't matter if you're playing a combo deck or a fair deck be prepared to lose uh, and lose gracefully. 
that's another important thing to note here because your opponent didn't do anything wrong to you. I mean, some people feel entitled to win, and I think that's one of the first things that you should lose playing any format. Like, you are owed nothing, and especially when you're trying something new, be humble, and every match is a new lesson. If anyone owes anyone anything, it's you owe your opponent a reasonable experience as far as like sportsmanship and, and all that goes. It's going to happen. You're going to lose on turn one. You're going to present a turn one win that gets triple force of willed or something like that. Uh, you'll keep a one lander, miss on your ponder, and then get wastelanded and you won't play a spell. These all come with the territory. But you will also do all of those things to many opponents in your upcoming legacy career. We're playing high power magic. High power magic frequently leads to non-games. Being able to solve for non-games, or at least minimize for non-games in both deck building and mulligan decision, that's that comes with the territory. And uh, just, you know, be cool. Like, wow, you beat three hate pieces. Good for you. Rather than you beat three hate pieces. Fuck you. <laughs> that that does, is not helpful to anyone. Generally speaking, being able to take a step back from your match and not being emotionally invested in the results of your match is probably a good thing. Like being able to take that stack back and analyze like, I lost to turn one reanimator. I kept a hand that didn't do anything till turn two. That was actually probably fully my fault. I had a turn to interact and I didn't mulligan enough to get there on the other hand oh my opponent had triple force of will my hand or my strategy couldn't beat someone who two for one to themselves three times in a row maybe i'm too all in on one portion of my deck treat your losses as learning experiences and try to grow from them and don't ignore that for your wins either like you might win but you could have punted that game seven different times on the way to that win get people to watch your matches like get friends to do some commentary take some notes for you like there is a lot of growth that can happen in a format that has as many decision points as legacy does kevin king told me a story once where uh he's a known lands expert uh he doesn't play as much magic anymore but there was a time where he was just tearing up the star city circuit with legacy lands and he told me once about a lands mirror he played early on in a tournament, and one of the things that you did in the Lands Mirror at the time is just plant a wasteland in play and leave it there so you can never get Dark Depths, because that's the cheesiest way to end a game. He had an opponent who just played Wasteland, fired it off on some random land, and Kevin rotated that random land into Dark Depths and made a 20-20 and killed his opponent. When the match was over in 14 minutes, uh, this opponent's friend was like, man, what happened? That's supposed to take a long time. And the, the guy was just like, I don't know, man, RNG, that's legacy, and walked away. That person is not improving with their deck. Shout out to that person, whoever you are. If you remember that game, I'm sorry for calling you out. Those sort of things, a an experienced legacy player will see those things happening on the other side of the board and recognize that they're happening. And it's probably exploitable. So being able to stop and think like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have just fired off Wasteland for no reason. That's how you're going to get better and stop taking those surprise L's. Coming from a format like Modern, for example, you can feel like you have more agency in the games because sometimes the games are just slower. A lot of the combo decks, for example, in Modern don't win until turn three or turn four. 
And that means if your opponent's playing something like Jund, they can have turn one Thoughtseize into turn two, you know, uh, Disruptive Creature, into turn three Liliana of the Veil. And your Jund player will feel as if they had more to do in that game. When you compare that to Legacy, the non-blue decks sometimes feel like there's less control, because if you're on Jund, which I don't know why you would be playing Jund, but in this hypothetical you are, uh, and you face Reanimator and they just turn one Gristlebrand you, you're like, oh, I didn't even get to cast my Thoughtseize. It might seem like you have less agency, but there's actually a lot, and I mentioned this earlier, of free ways of interacting. There's things like Fairy Macabre, Surgical Extraction, Endurance, Leyline of the Void, and these are just things within that color pie. I don't want you to think that you have to play blue, because I think that's something that a lot of people from the outside looking in feel as if they're required to do to play a high-power format. Decks like Lands exist and have been super successful over the last decade. Jarvis, you two Grand Prix top eights with just lands. And not, I'm not saying just lands, but there's two of his Grand Prix top eights are with lands. And that deck doesn't have Horse of Will in it. And I just want to make that point. You don't have to play blue when you're playing Legacy to feel like you have a sense of agency. Yeah, the vast majority of decks that I play are are not blue. I'm not allergic to cantrips or anything, but like I am very much the the ancient tomb hate bearer sort of gamer but yeah you absolutely will lose some games on turn one and there's not a lot you can do there's some you can mitigate with deck building but sometimes you have to think of the sort of legacy experience you want to sign up for when you register a deck that has force of will in it you are saying i have generic answers to everything and when you sign up to be the Magus of the Moon, Blood Moon, Chalice of the Void player, you're saying, I have extremely strong specialized answers or specialized lock pieces. And that's a very different side of legacy. So sometimes the cost of legacy, and I know that we had one of these recently, is bannings. So usually they're not going to go and ban Volcanic Island, for example. Uh but let's say you were someone who said, hey, I listened to this podcast, I bought Volcanic Islands, and now Delver might be shifting. Like, they banned Expressive Iteration, my Volcanic Islands aren't as good as they used to be, and now people are recommending Bug Delver, or Sultai Delver. Yeah, it does hurt to not have your Volcanic Islands be quite as good, but they're not going to ban a lot of the core pieces of the format. And if you still want to use your Volcanic Islands, things like Sneak and Show have been viable for the last 15 years or whatever. Like, these are not cards that are ever going to truly fade away. Traditionally in Legacy, they tend to go after newer things. I guess kind of one of the final things I, I want to talk about in this mental section is... The amount of mental burden that goes into thinking about what your opponent can have. Let's say you're playing standard. There's a very small card pool. You know the tricks that your opponent is likely to be playing. You go to modern and that card pool becomes much larger. When you go to legacy, it's basically every magic card ever printed with a relatively short band list. And that means that your opponent can be up to a lot of bullshit. All right, you're playing an artifact deck. Well, what are you playing around? Are you playing around Energy Flux, Meltdown, Force of Vigor, Brotherhood's End? 
there's so many different things that your opponents can be playing that it's difficult to know when you're first starting what are the things that are going to beat me here. What do I need to play around? If you regularly watch any of our video content, you will watch us making the absolute wildest called shots about what our opponents could have to beat us, and then it seems prophetic when they actually have it. Well, that's just years and years and years of practice and deck building experience to know this is the thing that's going to beat me based on the card pool, based on what my opponent reasonably could be playing. Right, there, the actual card pool is enormous, tens of thousands of cards. Playable, the bar of playability is a much smaller card pool that is probably more comparable to the Pioneer card pool than the actual Legacy card pool. And sometimes you do get like blown out by Piracy Charm or something that you truly weren't ready for. But most of the time it's going to be like, if you've done your homework at all, which is part of it, uh, keeping up on the metagame is part of any constructed tournament endeavor. If you've looked at last week's MTGO challenge lists and you saw that, well, this deck is on one meltdown, one brotherhood's end, not two meltdowns, that's information for you to work with. And you could start to navigate, like, am I going to win this game in two turns before Brotherhood's End comes online? Or am I just dead to Meltdown if I overcommit? And you could start to, it, it's kind of like Sudoku. You know what numbers need to end up in each row, and you know they have to go somewhere. Uh, but you have to figure out what they are based on the information that you do have. And that comes with reps, and it comes with doing your homework and knowing what's out there. I guess circling around for a final point here. In terms of learning legacy, one of the biggest things that I recommend to newer players is spend a little bit of time playing a bunch of the top decks. It doesn't need to be a lot, but even doing something like playing five matches with, you know, five matches with Delver, five matches with Reanimator, five matches with an initiative deck, five matches with Moonstoppy, five matches with Elves, whatever. Spending a few hours learning at least the bare bones fundamentals of each major deck in Legacy is going to help you out so much in trying to play against those decks. You will better understand what their sideboard options are. You're going to understand what their play patterns look like, what their choke points are for things like mana and resources. And even if you decide, like, yeah, I never want to play this deck again, the knowledge you gain is going to help you out so much in terms of your general legacy skill set. And that brings us back to how we started the episode, which it's totally free to scribble some stuff in Sharpie on the back of bulk magic cards. I've even seen a cool thing people do where they print like a grid of 10 card names and stick it into a sleeve with a card. Card number one across the deck is one deck. Card number two across the deck is another. Card number three, etc. So you could have 10 decks sleeved up in the same 60 card pile and say like, I'm playing deck five for this game. And you could just have a full gauntlet in two 60-card piles. Uh, you could represent 20 decks. And you can just get a lot of jams in that way. You don't even have to keep those decks up to date. Just get a feel for 
the general vibe and general what they're trying to do, and it'll go a long way there.